As announced, I will be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So far, the word of God. Well, thanks very much for reading, and it's lovely to be with you this evening. Good evening to you. I hope you've uh, been enjoying your time here. I've certainly been really refreshed by being here, um, even if the weather today has slightly taken a bit of a turn for the worse. Now, I wonder, as the weather has changed a little bit, whether you're more of a tabernacle or a temple person. My hunch is if you've been camping, you're definitely harking for the temple at the moment. But I'm not talking so much about your experience of uh, camping here or taking up an Airbnb at Keswick as the weather turns um, against you. I'm talking more about um, your disposition as a Christian. That is, um, the sociologist Robert Wuthnow talks about uh, temple Christianity and tabernacle Christianity or tabernacle spirituality as two modes by which the church kind of occupies its place in the world. Temple spirituality or temple Christianity is that of being settled, being accepted. It's the language and the thinking of Christendom. You know, a general sense that Christianity is part of the status quo. Um, General agreement on moral and um, truth matters. A sense of feeling accepted. Um, But there's a shift going on in the West as brick by brick the temple Christianity is being dismantled in the UK very much in our lifetime right now. And instead, you know, the sociologists are saying that we're going to have to get used to embodying what they would refer to as tabernacle spirituality. And just as when the Israelites were um, in the wilderness, tabernacle spirituality or tabernacle Christianity is much more displaced. You no longer enjoy the consensus of being aligned with where the culture's at. You feel on the margins increasingly. 
Now, of course, for us here in the UK and in the West in general, that is foreign to us because for hundreds of years we've enjoyed all the blessings of Christendom. But the majority experience of Christians in the world today is that of being in the tabernacle, so to speak. And so maybe we need to get used to this new mode of existing. Now, of course, when change comes along, it's always hard. Um, I uh, planted a church in London back in 2013, and when we planted, we were very much, we used to joke that we were very much in the tabernacle. That is, we had no fixed abode. We were trying to kind of find our, our way in the area where we were placed. We were renting different venues. Sometimes we had to move on to, a, to another venue. So imagine my joy as a planter when the church um, just down the road, St. James Clarkerwell, with its beautiful grade two-star historic building built in 1792, suddenly became available for us to combine our church plant congregation with their established church congregation and to bring the two together. And so here we were, arrived in the temple finally, though we didn't necessarily articulate it that way. And then, of course, after a couple of months, the Victorian heating system blew up, and we were faced with a leaking heating system, a cold building, and an 80,000-pound bill, and suddenly the tabernacle looked pretty attractive, to be honest. (laughs) My point being is it's always easy when there's a change to hark back, isn't it? And so as we face this change of tabernacle spirituality, tabernacle Christianity in the West, we can easily say, oh, no, bring back the temple. Bring back the Christendom. We long for the acceptance of the culture. We struggle to know how to navigate things in this new mode of being Christians. And in that context, this letter to the church in Philadelphia is really helpful for us because Like them then, we're going to experience a lot of what they have gone through. They feel on the margins. We'll find that out from them. They are facing suffering and difficulty and persecution. We'll find that out from them. And yet they are thriving in that context. We're going to see that as well. And the key thing as we engage with this and look at this, the key thing that this letter is wanting us to do today is is there in two commands, one direct command and one indirect command. The direct command is there in verse 11. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And the indirect command is there in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently. So you want to know what this letter is, um, you know, to the church in Philadelphia is there to establish in us? It's about holding on. It's about enduring patiently. Endure patiently in the original Greek is literally just one word, mono, which means to stand firm or hyperstand. Um, It's the image of, um, you know, earlier on today, there were these really strong winds suddenly kicked in. And if you saw an oak tree, some of these magnificent trees we have outside, with the wind blowing on it, The oak tree stands firm because it's firmly rooted. It can hyperstand. It's not going to be uprooted. And so as we face the difficulties of persecution and suffering, whatever they are in our lives at the moment, Jesus says, hold on, hyperstand, stand firm, be rooted, and be able to bend with the storm that might be coming your way. And look, I don't know what you've been through in this past period. If it's anything like what I've been through, that's a word I need to hear right now. Because we've, we've been through a storm, haven't we? And so we, we want to feel that there are enough spiritual resources in the gospel for us to stand firm. And quite often we feel like we're, we're barely rooted at all. Well, this evening as we look at this, I want us to see how these three wonderful images that we get in this passage will help us to stand firm. The three images that we've got are the keys to the door, the crown of victory, 
And then thirdly, the pillar in the temple, the keys to the door, the crown of victory, and the pillar in the temple. Let's look first of all at the keys to the door in verses 7 to 10. Now, you've had pointed out to you over the previous evenings that all of these letters follow a broadly the same pattern. And so as with this evening, you know, as we look at the pattern of these letters, I think there's a fourfold pattern, all beginning with C. It's very helpful when the Bible alliterates things for us preachers. So we've got Christ. It always tells us something about who Jesus is to encourage us. Then there's a commendation. Then there's a correction. And then there's a conviction that's going to motivate the church. Well, we only have three of those tonight. We have no correction. Like with the church in Sardis that we saw on Monday night with Jason, there's no correction here. This is a church that's doing well. Just commend it. And as the church is commended, they're motivated with some glorious truths of the gospel picked up by this image of the open door. The first thing we need to get, though, is the spiritual reality of what is going on and the context that they're facing. And you can see that in verse 9. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Uh, In these letters to the churches in Revelation, whenever the context is described, true to the meaning of the letter Revelation, there's also a spiritual reality that is revealed. Um, apocalyptic literature doesn't mean literature of the end times. Apocalypso means to reveal. It's a pulling back of the curtain. So as Jesus describes the situation to the church in Philadelphia here, he pulls back the reality on what's really going on. Now, the context was, was that the synagogue was shutting out Jewish believers um, because of their conversion to Christianity. But the spiritual reality that's shown here as he pulls back the curtain is they're not authentic Jews, Now, that's not an insult. They are ethnically Jews. But, of course, remember those words from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans? What is an authentic Jew? Well, Romans 2, 28 to 29. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly only, but a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. In other words, the authenticity of a Jewish believer is shown by the acceptance of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, But here, this synagogue are rejecting converts to Christianity, rejecting those who accept Jesus Christ. And so, they are not Jews, verse 9. And the spiritual reality behind any rejection of Jesus, as we see in the letter of Revelation, is that Satan is behind it. So this is not some slur on Jews in general in verse 9, but it's a diagnosis as they pull back the curtain on what's going on. They're facing suffering, but Satan is the one who's bringing it about. And not only are they facing suffering now, but there's also a prophecy of suffering coming down the line for them in verse 10, an hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. I mean, commentators debate a little bit on this, but I think it's most likely describing the suffering that's going to come down in the next few years for them, because this is a church that is um, experiencing the early part of Emperor Domitian's reign. And Emperor Domitian, as it went on later in his reign as the um, emperor at the time, started to institute the first statewide persecution of Christians. We know this because we have early letters from um, the early church. For example, this letter from a Christian called Melito at the time. He wrote this. Whatever never happened before is happening now. Religious people as a body are being harried, persecuted by new edicts all over Asia. Shameless informers out to fill their own pockets are taking advantage of the decrees to pillage openly, plundering inoffensive citizens night and day. 
So that's the context. Persecution, suffering, difficulty. And into that, we get the words of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, first of all, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Now, why are those two aspects so poignant for the church in Philadelphia? Because the, the message of who Jesus is is always tailored to the church. Well, holiness is about ethics, is about how we live a life, and truth is about the authority of where things come from. And I think it goes like this. In a church situation where you are experiencing tabernacle Christianity, when you're on the fringes, on the margins, don't think that the prevalent cultural views on morality and on truth and authority are going to be in line with Scripture. And don't think you're going to enjoy the consensus. And aren't we experiencing this at the moment in the UK? Increasingly, the moral position of Christians is not aligned with the culture, and increasingly, our stance on truth coming from Scripture is also not aligned with the culture. But Jesus says, don't worry. Holiness, goodness, truth come from me, not from the culture, not from the Western liberal consensus. So stick with me, even when the consensus moves the other way. And not only that, he says that he is the one who has the keys to the door. He says, verse 7, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, we're on a mission night tonight, so this could be talking about the open door for the gospel of gospel proclamation, and that would be a great alignment with the mission evening. Unfortunately, I don't think it's necessarily directly talking about that, though that's clearly an implication. And the reason for that is that this is a quote from Isaiah 22:22, where there was a steward of God's household at the time called Shebna, and God says to him that he's going to take the keys away from Shebna, and he's going to give them to a man called Eliakim instead, who's the authentic king. In other words, this is about who's got the key to the house. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the one with the keys to God's kingdom. I'm the one who decides who's in and who's out. Now, you can see the pastoral application here, right? The Jews are shutting the doors of the synagogue to the converts to Christianity. And of course, that's always what is most painful about persecution specifically and suffering in general. It feels like a closed door. Maybe, you know, it's a conversation you have with someone where you share your faith, and after that, the relationship just goes a little bit icy cold, and you experience the closed door of the relationship. Uh, maybe it's your career, and because you're open and honest about the fact that you're a Christian in the workplace, you know, you just slightly get passed over, not pushed forward quite as much as other people because you don't quite fit with the culture here. Maybe it's your family and you're thinking about becoming a Christian and they've just made it really clear to you that if you did, that would be fine as long as you're not one of those evangelical Christians, that's a bit over the top. Keep it nominal, we're fine with that, but we're not so sure that you should be too over-enthusiastic about it. Again, the, the threat of the door being shut there. Or maybe it's suffering in general. Isn't what, pain, what is painful about suffering the fact that doors are closed? You know, maybe you're suffering with ill health and the door is being shut on the freedom you enjoy of just being able to move around and not have pain in your body. Maybe tragically you've lost a loved one and you're mourning the door being shut on that relationship and you, you miss them. You long for the door to be open, to see them again and you, you're just having to wait until the new creation. Whatever it is you've gone through or going through right now, the pain of it is usually a shut door. And Jesus says to you, 
Doors may feel like they're being shut, but I'm the one with the keys, and we get the metaphor. When you have the keys, you can open the door. You can decide who comes in and who stays out. He says, I'm in charge, not the synagogue down the road, not the secular boss who's not so sure about your Christianity, not your friends who don't know what to make as you witness to them. I'm in charge of the open door. I'll decide when it's open and when it's shut. And what I open, no one will shut. And when people reject me and I shut the door therefore on them, no one can open it again. In other words, the authority is with me. It's a change of perspective. It's an encouragement there. I wonder what it is that you're facing at the moment that's really causing you pain, that makes you feel like a shut door. Well, Jesus wants to reassure you. And notice the words of reassurance to the church here. Verse 10 He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, to stand firm, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. Now, I don't think he's saying here that he will keep them by um, letting them escape it completely. I mean, that would be nice. I think we'd like that type of keeping, wouldn't we? You know, just a few of you can stay away from the difficulties that are coming. But as we're seeing, they're already suffering in verse 9 with a synagogue. So I don't think it's that. I think rather the keeping here is a bit like when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, that's a prayer not that we would have no temptation in our lives, but that when the temptation comes, it wouldn't overcome us. And so he's saying, you know, that I will keep you from the hour of trial. He's saying the trial will not overcome you because I'm the one with the keys. And you will overcome if you keep trusting me. So yes, there'll be difficulties, my friends. Yes, there'll be suffering. Yes, there will be persecution in tabernacle Christianity. But I've got the key, and I will keep you. So trust me, you will get through it. The keys to the door. Second great image that we have now is the crown of victory, verse 11. If the first image is an image of reassurance, this second one is a bit more of a prod and a bit more of a spur. You know, it's a wonderful balanced pastoral letter here. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus is the pastor, so he's, um, you know, he knows what he's doing. But, you know, sometimes we need the comfort, don't we, the reassurance. And then just as we had that, it's too easy to get too comfortable in our seats, and so we also need a little bit of a prod. Here, Jesus holds them both. He says, I'm going to keep you, so now hold on. And that image of holding on in verse 11 is the image of an athlete, The crown that's being talked about here is the victor's crown. So it's the strenuous effort that we've been seeing and watching and enjoying on our TV sets as we've been picking up in the morning the highlights of the Olympics. I don't know if you um, were watching the early parts of the Olympics, Adam Peaty, you know, one of our great Olympians. And he's so good that you just assume he's going to win now, and he always seems to win even over just a short distance by a full body length in um, the 100 meters breaststroke, for example. But... He's having to employ all of his strenuous effort. So why does he do that? Because of the joy of the victor's crown. Now, the illustration here is one we all get. If you were to see Adam Peaty in the midst of winter, you know, I was reading an article about him. He trains 20 hours a week in the pool, 10 hours on the track and in the gym. You know, he gets up at 6 a.m., has to say goodbye to his um, partner, bye to his son, and he goes off and he's in the pool at 6.30 a.m., up and down, doing miles in the pool. If you saw him in the winter, you'd say, Adam, is it worth it? Is it, what are you doing? You're making all these sacrifices. Is it worth it? He'd say, I'm not so sure. But you know what? That question is never asked when they've got the gold medal around their neck. You never see that in the interview, right? Gold medal around your neck. Was it worth it? Because it's a no-brainer. 
My friends, if you trust in Christ, you've already got the gold medal around your neck. And I know that it feels sometimes like you're saying, is it worth it? The sacrifices I'm going through, the difficulties I'm facing, that wonderful um, interview with Anna, where she was just able to read from that book, just the authenticity of, Jesus, I'm not sure I signed up for this. Haven't all of us experienced that in the last 12 to 18 months? COVID? Lord, I'm not sure I signed up for this. And Jesus says, when the crown is put on your head, you won't doubt that it's worth it. It feels like 6.30 a.m. in the cold pool at the moment, in the midst of winter, and you're saying, is it worth it? He's saying, my friend, hold on. Hold on. And for those of us who need a bit of a prod, that's a message for us. Um, A few years ago, I saw a um, Christian bumper sticker. I think it must get the prize for the worst Christian bumper sticker of all time. It was, don't wrestle, nestle. That's a glorious half-truth. There is a real sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ gives us profound comfort, loving arms of embrace, the arm around us as the great shepherd to say, I know what you're going through. I'm here for you. There's an open door. But as he does that as well, he also knows that sometimes he needs to give us a good prod. Hold on. I'll let the Spirit speak to you right now. I don't know which one you need. The Spirit does. Do you need a prod? Have you stopped holding on? Have you been relying in a wrong way on Jesus to keep you, but you've not been keeping yourself? It's always both, right? There's always both. He will keep you as you keep yourself. So hold on with real effort, real energy. And I wonder if one of the particular ways where we're going to have difficulty with that is around the idea of now that we're increasingly on the margins of society. It's very fascinating. I've been reading a few um, early church kind of um, uh, historians, and the early church was largely ridiculed and reviled for its stance in four key areas. The first one was how it treated um, the young children, you know, baby infants and the vulnerable. Um, in a society where it was common to throw away the children that were not quite genetically strong enough or were maybe not, um, you know, male if you were wanting a male heir, the church took them in and also protected widows and orphans, the vulnerable. And it was hated for it. Secondly, sexual ethics. We think that it's difficult being a Christian in today's Western society, but Greco-Roman sexual ethics were arguably far more liberal than they are for us today, and it was very, very hard, and they were hated for that as well. The third one was for a radically inclusive community where men and women were treated as equals, where people from different ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, were treated as equals. That was a complete no-no in the ancient world. And the fourth one was for the dynamic of forgiveness. In an honor-shame society, forgiveness was not welcome. If you mucked up and you were cast out of the community, don't you dare go forgiving them and bring them back in. So the church was hated for all of those four stances. Today, because we've had 2,000 years of Christianity in the West, by God's grace, those last two, inclusivity and forgiveness, are praised by the culture. But you know what? Increasingly, those first two are not, right? Beginning of life ethics, how we treat the vulnerable and the elderly, and then our position on sexuality... We are increasingly at odds with the Western consensus. And here's the thing. The early church did not win the world to Christ because it compromised in all of those four areas. And so we have the whispering in our ears, don't we, of sweet honey saying, if you just compromise, then the culture will accept you. 
But we have to learn the lessons from history. It was because the early church did not compromise on those areas that people were persuaded of the glory and the beauty of Christianity. They had to live it out even when it was hard, even when they got thrown in jail, even when they were persecuted. And even if we look at the history of the 20th century, the part of the church that has compromised the most to the culture, arguably the liberal church, is the weakest and most ineffective part of the church. The parts of the church that are growing most in the world are those who are on the margins. So you want a growing, vibrant Christianity in your life and in your church? Hold on. You might look like a loser to the world now, but Jesus sees that you've got the winner's crown already on your head. The medal is already around your neck. So don't give up. Don't give in. Hold on, he says. Hold on. The keys to the door, the victor's crown, and lastly, the pillar in the temple. I mentioned the, um, the genius of Jesus' pastoral approach. It starts with comfort, then he gives you a prod and a bit of a, you know, kind of hold on, and then he ends with hope. Notice the pastoral sandwich, comfort and hope with a prod in the middle. Pastors, be advised, that's how to do it. Well, there's a wonderful encouragement in this last bit as he gives them comfort and hope. You know, Philadelphia had an earthquake in AD 17 and it decimated large parts of the city. And so the emperor Tiberius at the time gave them a um, temporary reprieve on their taxes so they could plow their money into rebuilding the city. And so the city, as a show of thanks to the emperor and as a nod to the emperor, decided they were going to rename themselves New Caesarea. But as with all these things, the name never really stuck, and they went back to Philadelphia. Now, I come from London, and in London, we always have this problem with the naming of buildings. So, for example, the official name of one building in London is the Swiss Reinsurance Building. I mean, really catchy name. You know, the brand um, you know, guys had a really great day on that one. But the, um, the building looks like a giant gherkin, and some bright spark decided that when it was first built, they were going to light it up bright green. So guess what Londoners call it? The gherkin. And then we've got the walkie-talkie. You've no idea what that looks like. Yeah, it looks like a walkie-talkie. And then my favorite one is the cheese grater. You know, so every time the buildings have tried to be named one way, but Londoners named them the other way. And it was the same with Philadelphia. New Caesarea, no, it quickly became known again as Philadelphia. But notice how Jesus picks up on that in the letter to allude to the, the way of understanding his encouragement. Verse 12 The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it because of earthquakes or anything else. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. See the emphasis on permanent stability in the temple and the building? And see the emphasis on the new name, which must have been particularly poignant to those in Philadelphia. And he's saying this to them, a time is coming soon when you'll be shaken just like your city was shaken. You're going to be shaken by suffering. You're going to be shaken by the persecution that you're facing. But when you're shaken, realize that you live for a kingdom that will not be shaken, an unshakable kingdom. The pillars of God's temple are immovable, fixed in eternity. And that's a glorious picture of of intimacy because, 
you know, symbolically, God's presence in the Old Testament was in the temple, right? So therefore, to be a pillar in the temple was to be in the presence of God. Think of Psalm 84. How blessed it is to be in the house of the Lord. I'd even be a small bird if I could just be there in the temple, just to get a taste of being in God's presence, just a moment to enjoy him. So to be a temple pillar is to be in the presence of God permanently for all time. What a joy, what a blessing. And he says, so when you feel shaken, know that if you trust in Christ, you live for an unshakable kingdom. When you feel cut off, isolated, when people push you to the margins, know that the Lord welcomes you in. What a great blessing. What a great encouragement to keep going. And do you notice here the threefold names as well that he gives? He says, first of all, the name of my God. And then he says, secondly, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And thirdly, Jesus says, I will also write them my new name, my God, Father, city of my God, built, Ephesians 2, 22 to 23, by Ephesians 2, sorry, 21 to 22, by the Spirit, and my own name, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Spirit, happy to give you their name. And look, we don't really get this today. I mean, my name's Peter, and it's not because I have any particular association with a rock or anything like that. Um, but in the ancient world, your name said so much about who you were, about your heritage. And so when you were rejected and persecuted in society, it was shame to your name. But Jesus says this to you, my friends. When people reject you, at that moment... I don't reject you. In fact, at that moment, I give you my name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I put those names on you. I recognize you. The world may turn its back on you, but I recognize you, and I honor you, and I give you the name that is above every name in Jesus Christ. So hold on. So stand firm. And you may be saying, look, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to believe that, but you don't know what I've been through the last 12 to 18 months. You don't know what I'm facing now. You don't know my anxieties about the autumn. How can I really believe it? How can you really believe that this is true? How can you believe that there's an open door for you into God's kingdom if you trust in Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is, is because the Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, was happy to be shut out so that you could be welcomed in. Isn't it remarkable? He who has the keys, was shut out. He was crucified outside the city wall, symbolic of the reality of the way he was shut out of the Father's presence. So you, my friend, though you don't deserve it, for all of the ways you've pushed God to the periphery of your lives, for all of the ways that we all compromise, for all of the ways that when suffering comes along, we say, that's it, God. That's not what I signed up for. But Jesus was shut out so that you can come in. That's how you can be sure. You say, how can I be sure that the victor's crown is going to be there for me at the end? We all doubt it sometimes, particularly when we face suffering and persecution. How do you know? Because Jesus Christ looked like a cosmic loser on the cross, was mocked and reviled so that you might be a winner in him. He was dishonored, scorned as he was crucified so that you might be given glory and riches in eternity that are beyond the wildest dreams so that you might stand on the podium of heaven and hear those wonderful words, well done, my good and faithful servant, my brother, my sister, come in. You've overcome, you're the victor. 
How can you be sure that you will stand as a temple pillar in God's presence, enjoying eternity with him? How can you be sure? Well, because on the cross, the temple of Jesus' body was torn apart bit by bit as God poured out on him his just, settled, righteous anger for all of the ways that we reject God, for all of the ways that we don't hold firm to his promises. He was rejected so you can be accepted. He was shut out so that you might come, out, come in. He experienced hell on the cross so you might know the eternity of heaven with him. My friends, do you believe this? These are the words of him who is trustworthy and true. Amen? Amen. So this is our hope. As the words of the hymn put it, Saviour, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity I will glory in your name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All is boasted pomp and show. Solid, solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's members know. Well, as I close, I want to talk about two ways particularly that I think it's important for us to hold on. One holding on, one holding out. First of all, holding on. The overall command is to stand firm, to hold on. But I want to talk to you, Pastor, about what the experience of that is like. Think of that image I gave you about the oak tree. An oak tree on a still day is not standing firm because there's no duress, there's no stress, there's no strain on it. No, an oak tree is standing firm when the storm is raging. Friends, you will never know the power of Christ in your life until you experience what it's like to be put under strain and not to give in. There's a glorious point that C.S. Lewis makes in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says, the reason we know that Jesus Christ was tested to the uttermost is because he never gave in. A twig just breaks. It doesn't take much force. An iron bar, that can take force because it doesn't break. My friends, if every time the difficulty comes on your life, you say, that's it, I'm giving up, I'm not holding on. You'll, you'll never know the power of Christ in your life because the experience of holding on is to feel under profound strain. And that is the normal Christian life. What we've been through in the last 12 to 18 months with lockdown, what you might be going through now and what is coming probably down the line for us in terms of pure persecution is not abnormal. You'll never know the power of Christ unless you are standing under difficulty for Christ. So if you're feeling the strain, you're saying, Lord, I can't hold on anymore. Hear these words, hold on. Many men and women have gone before you who've trusted in Christ and haven't given up. He has persevered for you, the author and perfecter of your faith. So hold on, you can hold on. I know it's painful. I know it's uncomfortable. Gather your brothers and sisters around you and say, help me, pray for me, but hold on. Hold on. And lastly, hold out. There's just a glorious detail in here as I close. If you'll indulge me, I just want to make sure you see. Verse 9, when he's dealing with the synagogue of Satan who've shut them out, what does he say, second half it? I will make them come, fall down at your feet, and acknowledge that I have loved you. And yes, that could be talking about the end of time. You know, when everyone sees and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, some out of faith, some as they're rejected by him for eternity. But I think it's talking about what is going to happen as they hold on. I think it's saying to them that if you keep trusting Christ and if as you hold on, you also are authentic and hold out the gospel, guess what? Guess what? The very people who reject you will actually turn to me, some of them. 
And this is the normal Christian life again. Jesus Christ was the best witness the world has ever known. And so he was rejected. And yet we still think in the West particularly that if only we're winsome enough and if only we're kind enough that the world will accept us. And that's just not the way. You can't be an aroma of life to some unless you're prepared to be the stench of death to others. And so when you face persecution and suffering for speaking up about your faith, of course it's natural to think that's it, I'm going to walk away from it. But don't. Hold out the word of life. And some of those who reject you will soon turn around by God's remarkable grace and accept the gospel and acknowledge that he loves you as he loves them. Hold on. Hold out. Stand firm. He's the one with the open door, the victor's crown, and you will one day be like a temple pillar. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. They've fed me as I've been preparing them and praying them through over the past few days, and I pray that they might feed us all here tonight. And Lord, whatever we're facing, you know the particularities of our situations, of the stresses and strains that you're facing. You know the storms we're facing, Lord. Not only now, but maybe what's you know, in store for us in the future, Lord. None of us know that, but you do because you're sovereign. And so we pray that whatever we face, we would hear the comfort of the keys to the open door. We would hear the challenge of striving for the victor's crown, and we would hear the hope of that future, of being in that heavenly city with a new name as a pillar in the temple, forever dwelling in your presence and enjoying you. And we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.